0: Hello, today's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 22, verse 66 to chapter 23, verse 25. When they came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder For whom they asked but delivered Jesus over to their will. This is God's word
1: Thanks Deborah for reading scripture to us Uh, As we come to the Word, let's pray together again. Let's uh, join our hearts and ask God for help. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we give you thanks for your truth. Uh, We pray that you would sanctify us with your truth. Your Word is truth. Open our hearts by your Spirit. Help us to receive your Word and to be those who not just hear but also do your Word. Help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. We ask this in His name. Amen. The one place where a man ought to get a square deal is in a courtroom. Be he any colour of the rainbow. But people have a way of carrying their resentments right into the jury box. Now, those are the words of Atticus Finch, a lawyer, the hero of Harper Lee's novel To Kill a Mockingbird, set in the segregated deep south of the United States, Atticus takes on a really unpopular case. He is tasked with defending a black man wrongly accused of assaulting a white woman. And the story is told through the eyes of Atticus's daughter, Scout. And this Pulitzer Prize-winning novel tells of the damage done by racism and injustice. You know, books like To Kill a Mockingbird are popular. You know, they, they resonate with us. They give voice to our concerns that all is not right in the world. You know, We regularly come across all kinds of injustices. You know, maybe you're experiencing some form of injustice even now in, in your own life, in your own uh, place of study or work. Bullies humiliate their classmates. Bosses abuse their workers. People discriminate against others who are not like them, whether it's gender, or age, or race, nationality. Governments even oppress their own citizens. Injustice is all around us. We live in an unjust world. And injustice rightfully fills us with a sense of moral outrage and righteous indignation. We long for justice to be done, for the righteous to be vindicated, for the innocent to be uh, found innocent, and for the guilty to be punished. Deep in our hearts, we know that this is not the way things should be. We yearn for a world without injustice. We yearn for a world without oppression, where all the wrongs, Will be made right. But friends, do we also realise that we too are a part of the problem? We have all contributed to the greatest injustice there ever was in the history of the world. We're reaching the climax of Luke's Gospel. Jesus has been betrayed and arrested And although innocent, he is put on trial to answer all the accusations against him. Jesus suffers injustice. And in the end, the guiltless is condemned to die. The guilty is set free. Now, as we think about this story in Luke's Gospel, as as Jesus stands trial, is this merely another tragic instance of injustice in an unjust world? Just one more example of injustice. Is Jesus merely a hapless victim of a series of unfortunate events caught in the wrong place at the wrong time? Or will this miscarriage of justice actually somehow restore true justice and righteousness? As well, we we'll work our way through the text, we're just thinking about three points of reflection this morning. Number one, the king is falsely accused. So after Jesus' arrest he is interrogated three times. Luke records three interrogations in his gospel. Actually there are a total of six, if you read all the gospels, the total of six, but Luke records only three. Uh, so in, in Luke's account, Jesus is interrogated by the Jewish leaders, by the Roman governor Pilate, and by Herod, who is the ruler of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. So first he's brought before a council of Jewish leaders comprising the chief priests, the scribes and the elders you know, this council known as the Sanhedrin so the council wants to Jesus to tell them if he is the Christ now the, the, the Jewish leaders are not asking because they are genuinely interested in who Jesus truly is they are asking because they are looking for a reason to put Jesus to death so their question is a very politically charged loaded question Because the Jews understand that the Christ is a king. So, if Jesus says he is the Christ, he's declaring himself king. And if he declares himself king, the council can charge him with insurrection. Since Rome, the the ruling Romans, insists that there should be no king except Caesar. So Jesus rebukes the Jewish leaders for their hardness of heart. He says to them, In verse 67 and 68, you you ask me whether I'm, you want me to tell you if I'm I'm the the Christ, then he says to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. They're, They're not interested in actually knowing the truth. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Jesus has made himself known through his teaching and miracles. He has already said through his words and actions who he truly is. Right, when, when Jesus asked Peter, uh, back in chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel, you know, who do you say that I am? Peter confessed, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. Right, that, that title has already been uh, spoken of in Luke's Gospel. Jesus is indeed the Christ, the promised king of David's line. Right? That's what it means to be the Christ, the Messiah, the, the king promised who will come from David's line, who will save... God's people. So Jesus has said "Yeah, I am the Christ but he's not an earthly king with an earthly kingdom. He's not merely a son of David. He's also David's Lord because Jesus is God himself come in the flesh to save the people of God. So ignorance isn't the religious leader's problem. It's not because they don't know but it's because they refuse to believe. The problem is their hardness of heart. There is evidence all around them if they only had the eyes to see. But they refuse to believe what Jesus has said and done. Friends, unbelief is not an intellectual problem. It's not because we don't know enough, but unbelief is a hard-hearted refusal to trust Jesus and to take Him at His word. Friends, if we've already made up our minds to reject Jesus and His truth, then Jesus is not obliged to pander to our prejudice. Friends, I I, I urge us to not let preconceived ideas about Jesus keep us from knowing Him for who He truly is. Don't prejudge Jesus without listening to Him for yourself, without reading His Word, for yourself, don't jump to conclusions to Jesus too quickly, without coming to grips with what He actually says about Himself in His Word. You know, I encourage you to you know pick up pick up one of the Gospels in the Bible. You know, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Pick up pick up a Gospel, and, and just read it through for yourself. If if you're asking, you know, who is Jesus? Who, who does He say He is? How do I know Him? How do I believe Him? You know, pick up a Gospel and just read read it through for yourself, or, or better still. Uh, read it with... Uh, maybe, you, maybe you came here through a family member or friend who invited you here. Uh, have them read with you. Uh, read one of the Gospels with them. And have them maybe explain uh, things along the way to you. you know, I, I, I encourage all of us to not prejudge Jesus without hearing from Him ourselves. And the religious leaders think that they are judging Jesus, but in fact, He will be the one to judge them. Right. He says these rather profound words in, in verse 69. You know, from now on, right, from this point onwards, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Right. Jesus is in, in some ways kind of pulling back the curtain a bit and helping the religious leaders to see what's really happening. Who's the one who's really on trial? Not Him, but them. Jesus may appear weak now while He faces trial, but in reality, He is the glorious Son of Man mentioned in Daniel 7. Now, Daniel 7, you know, we sang earlier on, the Ancient of Days, and that's where that, that term comes from, Daniel 7. There came one like a Son of Man, and He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him, and to Him, to this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus says from now on the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the power of God, He's saying, I am this King. I am this Son of Man mentioned in Daniel 7. So He tells the religious leaders, you think you're judging Me? One day you'll stand, I'll stand, you stand before me in judgment. So when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he will glorify God. The Father will also glorify the Son by lifting him up. And because Jesus was obedient unto death, even death on the cross, he will be crowned king forever. His kingdom will never pass away, he will be exalted in power to reign with God on high and He will come again to judge the whole earth. And King Jesus calls us to trust in Him now. As He stands ready to receive us, He is our Savior. He offers Himself to be our Savior now. He calls us to come to Him now. Otherwise, we will face Him as we face the judge. So Jesus' death seems weak in the eyes of the world, but His death is actually His glory. This is precisely how He will be enthroned as King. Right? From now on, you'll see the Son of Man exalted through His death on the cross. So, his, so the work of Christ on the cross, far from being weak, is actually the very power of God to save. Now, realizing that Jesus is claiming to be more than an earthly king, the Jewish leaders ask, Are you the Son of God then? And Jesus replies somewhat enigmatically, Well, you say that I am. Jesus is God's Son. Uh, He is the Eternal Son come to reveal the Father to us. So to know God, we must know His Son. There's no other way to come to the Father except through the Son. In fact, the Father says this of Jesus earlier on in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 9. Right? At Jesus' uh, transfiguration, the Father says, This is my Son, my Chosen One. And then the Father says, Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Luke 9, verse 35. But instead of listening to the Son, the religious leaders decide that they've heard enough. As far as they are concerned, Jesus has blasphemed by claiming to be the Son of God. Now, more than ever, they are bent on killing the Son, on killing Jesus. And they accuse Him before the Roman governor Pilate because only the Romans have the power to execute the death penalty. So they know that they can't put Jesus to death themselves. They have no power to do so, no legal power to do so. Only the Romans have that power, so they want to bring Jesus before the Romans so that they will do their dirty work for them. Now, the Romans don't care about Jewish religious disputes, right? The Romans would say to the Jews, that's your religion, it doesn't concern us, go deal with it yourselves. So they, they don't care about Jewish religious dispute, but they will ruthlessly quash any political unrest. Right? What the Romans care about is not questions of religion, but questions of politics. And stability, and in civil government. So, if Jesus is a rebel, the Romans will not hesitate to kill him. And the Jewish leaders know this. Right? Uh, they know that if they bring Jesus to the Romans and just say that he is claiming to be a false Messiah, right, teaching all these wrong things, uh, the Romans will not do anything. The Romans say that's that's not our problem. You know, just fix it yourselves. So the Jewish leaders know that. And they know that in order for the Romans to take action, they must bring charges against Jesus that the Romans care about. Right? So if you look at the charges that they bring against Jesus in chapter 23, verse 2, these are political charges, not religious ones. He right? says, We found this man misleading our nation, you know, stirring up unrest, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, right? saying, hey, stop paying taxes because Caesar's not your king saying that he himself is Christ, right? This this is a political understanding of Christ. He himself is Christ, a king. So these are political charges that the Jewish leaders are bringing against Jesus. Basically, they're saying to Pilate, this man is a terrorist. He is an insurrectionist. And then they know Pilate will then be compelled to pay attention. But of course, we know that all these charges are false. Jesus did not mislead the nation. He simply taught the way of God. And only those who oppose God will view Jesus as a troublemaker. Now, Jesus clearly did not forbid people from paying taxes when He was asked the question in chapter 20. Jesus said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So pay your taxes. Yes, Jesus is the Christ. But unlike the political Christs that the Romans were familiar with, Jesus is not that kind of Christ. He's not that kind of false messiah. You know, there have been many false messiahs in, you know, in Jewish history, many false messiahs who tried to overthrow the Romans by claiming that they were the king, they were God's anointed one. And the Romans had quashed every single one. Right? Some of them very brutally put down. But Jesus never claimed to be that kind of messiah. Jesus never claimed to be an earthly king. In fact, as we saw in our previous passage, He stopped His disciples from fighting. Right? He, stops, he stopped His disciples from violence. When He said, hey, we have two swords, He told them, stop it. Right? Enough of this. You, know, you, you completely misunderstand the nature of my messiahship, my, my kingdom. is not about fighting. It's not about violence. Jesus had no intention of starting any political revolution. He's not a revolutionary. Now, you know, even, even to Pilate himself, it's obvious to Pilate that Jesus is not that kind of rebel. Right? You know, Pilate questions Jesus briefly, and, and in those few questions, Pilate knows very clearly that this man is no insurrectionist. So Pilate declares in verse 4: I find no guilt in this man. In fact, Pilate declares Jesus to be innocent not once, not twice, but three times in our passage. Again and again, Pilate insists that Jesus is innocent. He's clearly guiltless. But uh, friends, Pilate faces uh, a dilemma. So he can either release Jesus but risk a revolt by angry Jewish leaders or he can give in popular pressure and find Jesus guilty. So that, that's the dilemma that Pilate faces. He knows that Jesus is innocent. should release him. But that's bad for him, right? Because these leaders will then complain to his bosses in Rome. Or, or Pilate can send a, uh, an innocent man to his death. And that's easier for him. It's more expedient for himself. So Pilate Historians tell us Pilate is notorious for being merciless and self-serving. A Pilate will do whatever it takes to protect himself and his career, even if it means sending an innocent man to his death. Sounds like really bad office politics. (laughs) Pilate is pragmatic. Pilate is worldly. You know, when, you know, Luke doesn't record this, but in John's Gospel, John records this interesting exchange between Pilate and Jesus. And you know, when Jesus says he has come to bear witness to the truth, Pilate says one of the most cynical things in all of Scripture. You remember the line? You know, Pilate looks at Jesus and says, "When you come to bear witness of the truth." And Pilate says, "Huh. What is truth? Right? Th- that's that's very cynical, right? What is truth?" There's no truth. It's just about how you get ahead in life. You do whatever it takes. You kill whoever you need to. It's just about you. Right? What is truth? There is no truth. So some reject Jesus not because they have strong views against Him, but some reject Jesus because they are simply indifferent. Some reject Jesus because they are too caught up with worldly things like career, Success, recognition, power, and influence. Friends, maybe some of us see ourselves in pilot. I I think the idea of being pragmatic is is very much a part of Singaporean culture. We, We do things because they work. We do things because they're efficient. We do things because these things are good for us. They're productive they get the job done. We are task-oriented people. We are results-oriented people. We are outcome-driven people. In these ways, we're we're very much like Pilate. So maybe some of us see ourselves in the pragmatism and the worldliness of Pilate. So you don't have to be hardened in your unbelief to reject Jesus. You just have to be indifferent. Pilate is a cunning Opportunist. When he finds out that Jesus is from Galilee, he said, Ah, Galilee, not my jurisdiction. So he concocts a scheme to let him wash his hands of Jesus while keeping the Jews happy. So Pilate sends Jesus to Herod because Galilee is Herod's jurisdiction. So basically he says, Hey, not my problem anymore. I'm gonna send Jesus to this guy because he is the ruler of Galilee. So he sends Jesus to Galilee and, and Jesus faces his third interrogation in our text. No, Herod sees Jesus and Herod is happy to see Jesus. But then Luke tells us Herod is happy to see Jesus only because Herod wants to see Jesus perform some sign. So Herod is not really interested in who Jesus truly is. What he wants is to be entertained. Herod wants to be amused by Jesus' miracles. Right, and, and Jesus knows Herod's heart, and that's why in his interrogation by Herod, Jesus says nothing. Right? Jesus, has, Jesus is not obliged to indulge Herod's desire to be entertained. You know, and Herod is frustrated by the snub, right? Saying, like, how come you're not saying anything? How come you're not doing anything? And Herod's curiosity about Jesus very quickly turns into Contempt. He and his soldiers mock Jesus by dressing him up in fancy clothing and he sends him back to Pilate. You know, confronted with the king of all creation, you know, Jesus stands before Herod. He's the king of all creation. And all the frivolous Herod can think of is his own entertainment. You know, Herod has literally made a mockery of God himself. Now in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, uh, this author, New Postman, I'm not sure, I, I don't know if New Postman is a Christian, but this is an interesting book. He wrote it in the 1980s. And in this book, uh, New Postman bemoans how uh, you know, modern civilization will lose its independent capacity, or, or will lose its capacity to think independently because of the onset of mass entertainment, television. right? In the 80s, he, write, he writes about television. I wonder what he would think about us now, today. <laughs> so in this book, uh, Postman predicted that humanity would be ruined not by suffering, but by pleasure. You know, he wrote, Christianity is a demanding and serious religion when it is delivered as easy and amusing, which is what Pilate wanted. It is another kind of religion altogether. No, and, and in this book, Postman goes on to talk about how the idea of truth is drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Truth is submerged in a sea of trivialities. Eternal life and death, friends, hang in the balance. But are we too entertained? Are we too distracted to care? Have we become so preoccupied with the pleasures of life? We live in uh, a city where all kinds of pleasures are available to us, some legitimate, some illicit. Friends, are are we so preoccupied with just making a better life for ourselves that we've neglected Jesus? How might we have treated Jesus with contempt? because He's not given us what we want. We come to the second point as we work our way through the text. The king is condemned to die, looking at verses 13 to 25. So both Pilate and Herod agree that Jesus is innocent. Pilate says to the Jewish leaders, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, Behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Verses 14 and 15. So Pilate and Herod both know that Jesus is guiltless. But neither Pilate nor Herod gives Jesus the justice he deserves. In fact, to appease the Jewish leaders, Pilate offers to punish him instead. The punishment Pilate has in mind is flogging which involved being beaten with a whip made up of pieces of metal. So flogging would cut its victims so severely that their bones would be exposed underneath the flesh. Some unfortunate victims of flogging wouldn't even survive such a brutal beating. So Pilate says, okay, maybe if I can punish Jesus to the edge of death by flogging Him, maybe these Jewish leaders will be satisfied. Maybe I can give them enough blood just to satisfy their anger and their desire for vengeance. But but even this doesn't satisfy the Jewish leaders. They they start stirring up the crowd and they bathe for blood. Crucify. Crucify Him. Verse 21. Uh, The religious leaders accused Jesus of misleading the people, but ironically, in this text, it is they who have led the people astray by turning them against Jesus. So Pilate makes one last attempt to have Jesus released. It was customary for the Romans to set a prisoner free during Passover. So Pilate offers the Jews either Jesus or Barabbas, who was a convicted terrorist and murderer. I think the irony in this story is that Barabbas was indeed guilty of all the charges that the Jews had brought against Jesus. Barabbas is actually the one who is guilty of stirring up the people, telling people not to pay taxes, and claiming to be a king because he was an insurrectionist. So he presents Jesus or Barabbas, and you know, Pilate thinks that the choice is obvious, right? That's why Pilate's thinking it's, it's such an obvious choice. Why would you choose to release a, a hardened criminal over an innocent man? No, Pilate says this is a very obvious choice, right? Jesus or Barabbas. But for a third time, in spite of what Pilate says, you know, he says in verse 22, what, what evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But in spite of what Pilate says, the Jews and now the people that they've stirred up they demand the death of Jesus. Verse 23, they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that Jesus should be crucified. And their voices prevail. So with the crowd getting more and more angry and agitated, the pragmatic Pilate finally relents. And and Pilate makes a very cynical political calculation. Right? A very cynical one. He He reasons it is better to give the Jews what they want and have Jesus killed than to risk a revolt that will get him in trouble with his bosses in Rome. So basically, Pilate is saying, I just need to cover my behind, make sure that I don't get in trouble with my bosses. I'm happy to sacrifice an innocent man just to protect myself. So Jesus and Barabbas, they exchange places. They trade places. The guiltless is condemned. The guilty is set free. Friends, Luke presents us as he he mentions this exchange of prisoners, Luke presents us with the very heart of the Gospel. Friends, this is what the Gospel is really about. It's about this exchange that happens at the heart of the Gospel. the early some of the Christian writers in the past describe this as the sweet, as the sweet exchange. A sinless substitute takes the place of guilty sinners. That's really the heart of the gospel. Isaiah fifty-three verses four to six says, "Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows; yet we esteemed him stricken." smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With His wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned Everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, friends, it's clear from this passage, with the repeated pronouncement by Pilate of (coughs) innocence, it is clear that Jesus did not deserve to die, but he laid down his life to save sinners like us by taking the punishment for sin on our behalf. We are the stray sheep. We've all gone away. We've all turned away from God. Instead of glorifying our Creator, the One who made us for Himself, we have lived for ourselves. We have selfishly pursued our own desires, our own plans, our own aims in life. And the Bible calls our rebellion against God, sin. And because we have sinned against God, because we have all forsaken Him, we are the ones who should stand in the place of judgment. We are the ones who should be facing the just and righteous judgment of God against us. If you, look, if you read this story, the person we should identify with is Barabbas. Barabbas is us. But Jesus saves sinners through the gospel's sweet exchange. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He perfectly obeyed God. And yet, He died the death that we should have died, bearing God's wrath against sin. If we believe in Jesus, then He gives us. And he gives us. Not, not something that we earn, not something that we deserve because of all the good things that we've done, but He gives us. His righteousness in exchange for our guilt and shame. He takes our guilt, gives us His righteousness. He gives us life by His death. And and Paul explains this well in one verse in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, in Christ alone, we might become the righteousness of God. Of God. Friends, that's the that's the good news of the gospel, that's the sweet exchange of the gospel. And Jesus invites us to believe in Him, to be our substitute, to be our representative before a holy God, before a holy judge. So, friends, have we trusted in this substitute to save us from our sins so that we can be forgiven and made right with God? And friends, because Jesus suffered injustice, He is able to comfort and encourage us when we suffer unjustly. You know, Some of us may be struggling with various kinds of injustice in our life. It may be a difficult family member in our lives. It may be an unreasonable boss or co-worker, someone who's treating us unjustly in the workplace. It may be someone who's saying or doing hurtful things against us because we want to speak of Jesus and follow Him. Friends, this passage shows us that Jesus suffered unjustly and therefore He's able to empathize with those of us who also suffer unjustly for His sake. So don't lose heart, friends. Don't lose heart. Jesus knows what we are going through because He experienced it Himself. It says in 1 Peter 2, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Friends, do we realize that when we suffer unjustly, it is precisely in the suffering of injustice that we most resemble Jesus? We we desire to be Christ-like So how do we be Christ-like? We suffer with Him. So in in that moment when you feel most alone, when you feel most victimized, in that very moment, you are most like Jesus. And and let that really encourage and and strengthen your heart. To know that when you suffer unjustly, you are displaying by your very life the beauty of Christ because He suffered unjustly, leaving an example for us so that we might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so Peter Peter tells us how Jesus responds to injustice. And, And this is really pastoral counsel for those of us who suffer unjustly. How do do we respond to injustice? Peter says, we entrust ourselves, just as Jesus did, we entrust ourselves to Him who judges justly. Our hope, our final assurance and confidence is not that we will ultimately find justice in this world. We may or we may not. Our suffering may get better or our suffering may get worse. We may face even more injustice. That's why Peter says our hope, our confidence is to entrust ourselves to the God who does what is right, to the God who knows His people, to the God who empathizes with His people, to the God who hears the cries and pleas of His people and He loves them, and He will do what is right in His time. That, friends, is our hope and assurance when we suffer unjustly. We entrust ourselves to Him who judges justly. Our Heavenly Father will do what is right for our good and for his glory. Finally, the king fulfills God's salvation plan. As we move to the third and final point. Pilate delivers Jesus over to the will of the Jews, verse 25, to do whatever they to do to Jesus as they pleased. But friends, Jesus is no hapless victim of human sinfulness. Just when it looks as if sin will triumph, we are meant to see that everything taking place happens according to God's plan. Jesus Himself had already spoken of this, of what would happen to Him. He said in Luke 18, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spat upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. So whatever is happening to Jesus, is happening according to what Jesus has already said. Nothing is random or accidental. You know, in in Luke twelve, Luke makes this rather interesting observation about Pilate and Herod. Right? He says in Luke. Sorry, not in Luke 12. In Luke, in our passage in verse 12, Luke says, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. You know, two buddies, come, two, two former enemies become buddies. You know, for before this, they had been at enmity with each other. You know, why, why does Luke mention this about Pilate and Herod becoming friends? It's an interesting detail in our text. You now some of us may have heard about this play and Inspector Calls. An Inspector Calls, written by J.B. Priestley, it's a it's a play uh, written, I think, in the earlier part of uh, uh, last century. So in this play, an inspector calls, uh, a police inspector, calls on a wealthy family, saying that a young woman has taken her life. So the inspector begins to question every family member one by one, in turn. And as the play progresses, we begin to discover, the audience begins to discover that, wow, actually, every single family member knew the woman in his or her own way. They all had connections to this woman. And, And the inspector, through his methodical questioning, begins to uncover this whole web of relationships between every single family member and this young woman who had just taken her life. The father sacked the woman from his factory. The daughter's petty complaint got the woman fired from her next job. The son took advantage of the young woman and got her pregnant. The mother ran ran this charity, but the mother's charity refused to give this young woman any help when she showed up to ask for assistance because she was a single mom. So one by one, we discover that all of them have failed this young woman, every single one of them. One by one, we discover that every single family member had a hand in driving this poor young woman to suicide. They are all guilty. And I think this is why Luke records this friendship between Pilate and Herod. In a similar way, Luke wants us to see that the Jewish leaders, Pilate and Herod, all were complicit, all were culpable in the death of Jesus. And in doing so, they unwittingly fulfill the words of Psalm 2, verse 2 The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the lord and against his anointed friends these jewish and gentile leaders they represent sinful humanity in its rebellion against god they represent us every single one of us we all have a hand in jesus death our sins nailed christ to the cross But sin does not win. The darkness of our depravity cannot blot out the light of Christ. Jesus' suffering and death will turn out to be His glory. Jesus conquers through the cross and fulfills God's plan to save sinners. And even in these darkest hours as Jesus faced trial, God is still in control. His sovereign will is still being done. That's why it says in Psalm 2, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. As for me, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Nothing can dethrone Christ. Nothing can de-God God. God. Living in an unjust world, this is our hope and our assurance that Jesus is king and He will remain king and He will ever be king. Earthly justice is limited, and it will fail us. But we can trust in Jesus to ultimately put right all the wrongs and restore true righteousness. Friends, it was God's will to crush Jesus, to crush His Son for our sakes. The believers in Acts understood this, which is why they prayed in this way. In Acts 4, in fact, they, they quoted the very words of Psalm 2 in their prayer, and then they went on to pray, truly in this city that were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And then they, they went on to say this important line, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Friends, the, the, the wonder of all these things is that it was the Father Himself who sent His Son to the cross. The greatest injustice ever perpetrated in the history of the world, the murder of God's Son, cannot thwart God's plan to save sinners. Indeed, it is through His sacrificial death that Jesus has turned a terrible travesty of justice into a triumph of God's righteousness and grace. And so we can say these words with great encouragement. For God so loved the world, He loved the world in this way, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Friends, God sent His Son to the cross for us. Will we trust Him? And having trusted Him, will we give thanks to Him? Will we praise Him? and give ourselves to Him completely because He has given Himself for us. How deep the Father's love for us indeed, how vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon His shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers, Friends, maybe say this and mean it. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we give you thanks and praise indeed. We, we come to you now as those who are unworthy, as those who deserve your righteous judgment against us. And Father, if we are honest with ourselves, if we are honest with you, we would be the first to acknowledge that we are guilty, that we are broken and needy sinners, and we come to you empty-handed, knowing that we do not deserve to come but we come only because You invite us to, and we come only because You have first opened the way for us through Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank You and praise You that it is by Your will that You have sent Your only Son to the cross so that He might offer Himself as the sacrifice for our sins. So Father, as we behold Your grace and mercy in Jesus Christ, we pray that You would melt our hearts in humble worship of You. Father, we pray that You would fill us with such gratitude, such joy, such assurance that that comes from You alone. Father, help us to turn away from ourselves. Help us to humbly acknowledge and confess our need for mercy. Father, as we come before You now, we pray that You would draw us near to You through Your Son. May we come to Him trust Him. May we give ourselves to Him, follow Him, and seek to live for His glory in all of our lives. Help us, Father, we pray, for His sake. We ask this in His name. Amen.